Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago, and we are excited uh, to welcome you to our six-episode series on effective outcomes in marketing. Our goal for this first episode is to sort of underscore the importance of starting out right. And our guest for this episode is uh, the famous Mark Ritson, who has been a, a, a guest on the show before. Mark is an industry columnist. He's a strategy advisor. He's a professor of marketing and founder of the uh, Mini MBA program. Uh, those of you who know Mark and know that he is not an agency side guy. Mark has spent his career in large part working for a large corporation. So he's got a client eye focus, which is why I thought he was the perfect candidate for this first episode. But before we get to Mark Ritz, and I wanted to welcome back um, David Tiltman. He is SVP of content at Wark, the sponsor of our show. And uh, welcome back, David. Great to be here, Fergus. What do you guys see as the most important factors in starting out right so that you ensure that uh, no mistakes are made at the earliest stages? The question to ask is, is the marketing activity, uh, does it really reflect the overall business needs uh, of the organization? So are you starting from business objectives, then working through to marketing objectives, then working through to communications objectives? Uh, are you able to sort of articulate uh, articulate that? And some of the best case studies that we, we see in Walk are the ones that very, very consciously articulate that because it becomes very clear very quickly what the marketing and then the communications uh, have to achieve. A huge aspect of that is picking goals and agreeing on goals that are achievable. How do you guys at work help clients get perspectives on what is and what might not be achievable? Are there are there sort of is there intelligence tools? Is there is there a way that you guys help serve that challenge? Yeah, yeah, in a couple of different ways actually. I'd say the best place to start with that is a uh, is a white paper we we. Uh, sort of updated over the summer called the anatomy of effectiveness, which sort of boils down a lot of the effectiveness knowledge into a sort of five key steps for uh, five key considerations for uh, both for setting objectives and then for setting yourself up uh, for success as you go through the development process. The other, the other way is uh, through our case study database. So Walk has 20,000 plus case studies uh, from all over the world. And one of the most common use cases of those case studies is to for a, for a, for an agency for for a client to say, well, look, this is the this is the brief, this is the goal. We're trying to reach this audience, or we're trying to achieve these particular objectives, uh, and and this is roughly what our, our campaign needs to achieve. If we look at a load of other campaigns that have the same challenge what does good start to look like there? And can we sort of take any lessons from there about what is and isn't achievable? Yeah, it's so true because it's almost like you, you need that inspiration before you define your marketing goals so that you you understand it is achievable. And, and I think you get, an, you get a sense of how you need to frame an objective in order to achieve it by looking in part at what you can be inspired by in other case study uh, documents. So this is Mark Ritson and his perspectives on starting out right. Thanks, David. Thanks, Fergus. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
I'm delighted to have Wark as a sponsor of this series. Wark is the authority in marketing effectiveness. With Wark, you gain the confidence to challenge the status quo, prove your business case, and fuel the innovation needed to take your marketing effectiveness to the next level. For nearly 40 years, Wark has helped customers around the world make more confident marketing decisions by giving them access to proprietary research, an extensive library of case studies and best practices, and robust data and inspiration. Who do the world's leading brands, agencies, and media owners turn to when they want to make sure their plans are going to work? The answer is Wark. You can learn more at Wark.com. That is W-A-R-C.com. And now back to the show. So let's start off. We're going to dive right into it. What are some of the common client-side mistakes or assumptions that are being made at the earliest stages of planning? So I like the way you've asked that question because there's kind of two schools of thought in the client world in terms of being ready to work with agencies. There's the obvious need to be able to deliver a client brief, a briefing in which you are transmitting your strategy to the agency partners. And there's been a lot of focus on that in in recent months, which is a good thing. And we need to make clear this is a client brief, not a creative brief. Creative brief happens inside agency world. This is the external client brief where the client is letting agency or agencies know, this is my strategy I want you to work off. So that's one area where there's a lot of mistakes. It's not done very well. My take on that is it can be improved massively, but I believe there's a much bigger issue. And the bigger issue is before you brief your agencies, you have to have a strategy in place, clear and ready to go. And you could be the greatest briefer on the planet. If you don't have a clear strategy, then obviously it's all going to be mush at the end. And you're so talking about me, a clear a, marketing strategy, or are you talking about business strategy, right? Let's let's be clear, and those terms can be confusing. Let, 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 let's be clear on that too. So there's a big difference between business strategy or strategy in general and the marketing or brand strategy that we execute into the market. I don't see any difference between marketing strategy and brand strategy in the general sense. Um, although it's different in different companies because some companies like P&G have an over, overall marketing strategy and then lots of different brands with individual strategies mm-hmm. and other companies like IBM, it's one and the same thing. So I wouldn't get too caught up on the difference between brand and marketing strategy. They mean different things in different companies, but they're ostensibly the same thing. But it's crucial not to confuse that general marketing strategy, whatever we're marketing, with the broader, higher-up corporate strategy, which is much more general, in my experience, often looks much more basic, but isn't, and is is much more long, long long-term. And the way that normally plays out in, in client planning is, we typically have these strategic imperatives or, you know, long-term goals that we have to service within our marketing strategy. So we have to show that our marketing strategy is going to work, going to make us money, but it's also going to be consistent with the broader strategic direction of the organization. So what are some of the assumptions? I mean, some of the assumptions that are the mistakes that are commonly made at those earliest stages, are there things that are overlooked? Are there assumptions that you notice are made too often that have consequences down downstream? 
Yeah, there's, there's two or three classic ones, right? So the first thing about strategy is it's built on diagnosis. So it's not like we sit with a blank sheet of paper and pull things out of our ass and start writing things down. Before you get to strategy in marketing, you've already done the diagnosis hard yards. So we've already gathered our research. We've done our brand tracking. We've built our segmentation. We're looking at the at the battleground before we start coming up with a battle strategy. You can often trace stupid and pointless uh, marketing strategy back to the fact that they don't actually know the market. So let's not forget that point. I don't want to go into it too much, but you build strategy out of diagnosis. So that has to be done first. Often it's not. The second problem we've often got is, and the most common problem is the client strategy isn't ready. And it isn't ready in the sense that we're still disagreeing. We have too many people involved with different points of view. We think somehow the creative process with the agencies is going to clarify our strategy, which in my opinion is an enormous mistake. Um, And you get back to this you know, central thought of strategy, which is very, very important for your listeners to grasp, which is you have to cook a strategy. You have to, you know, you have to write your plan and then you change it and you run it through people who are smarter than you. You think about it in the shower, you present it internally, you suddenly have a, a moment on a plane, you alter it, you you cook it for a while. Because what happens with a good strategy is it becomes simpler as you think more in more complex, advanced ways about it. You know, very simply, a crap strategy isn't thought about enough and as a result is overly complex. And a great strategy is thought about so much that it becomes commonsensical. And, you know, the greatest honor you can get from your team is they say to you, look, this is yeah, this is good, but it's kind of obvious. And you're like, yeah, I made it obvious. I'm not going to say that to you guys. You don't know the complexity behind this. But if it's obvious, we can all get it done, right? I've never worked client-side, but I've had um, many strong relationships with clients that they've been willing to share what their dynamic on that side of the table tends to be. And a lot of them have complained about the fact that if they're not a marketing-driven organization, there's a tendency for their bosses to come to them with goals and objectives that are just either plain not achievable or not changeable. And I'm wondering, is what advice could you provide for marketers who are dealing with that sort of a situation where they know these can't be achieved? They know, and, and it doesn't have to be an issue of resource. It could just be an, an issue of strategic challenge that can't be done. Um, but they don't even have the face time with the senior people internally at a client side to be able to change what they're then expected to bring to their marketing partners. Any tips on how you sort of scrutinize what's handed down to you as a marketer, how you can respectfully push back or lean back? Look, the only the only way to do it, I mean, unfortunately the best advice is don't work for that kind of company. And and I've <laughs> come to that I've come to that advice from from hearing this question many times, right? Um and, and you're being very polite, Fergus. Often from the C suite, it's not just suggesting unachievable objectives, it's just plain wrong objectives because these people don't understand the market and they've listen to someone often in their close family and they want them to do X. And and with a crap marketing department, that doesn't have any problems because we'll just do X and we don't even have to do any planning. The problem is when that happens with a great marketing department, they know it's wrong and they have a better idea. And that, as you say, it gets very frustrating and it can be very intractable. The, the best solution in that kind of environment 
is the planning process itself. And there's a lot of great stuff. Roger Martin and all the other great strategy profs will remind us that a plan is not a strategy. And that's absolutely you know, crucial. To, you know, It's not about a document. It's about having the strategy first and then putting it into a plan or presentation. But in my experience, the presentation itself, the brand plan, the marketing plan, is the place where that crucifixion of of bad ideas and and bad thinking can be uh, best erected. So my point is, remember that marketing plans, particularly for new products, can often be should often be about shutting them down because there isn't a play or shutting down initiatives or ideas that are coming from senior management that you can use your data and your understanding of the market to explain quite, you know, quite rationally and patiently why that doesn't make sense. And I love nothing more in, in you know, I've sat through literally, I would say now, more than 2,000 marketing plans in my life. I love nothing more than a judicious hyperlink. So you get some very good brand manager presenting her strategy and someone senior says, but why aren't you going after, you know, such and such? And she smiles and she reaches out for a little hyperlink in the corner of her deck and she goes, well, click. If you look at that group, you'll see ding, 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 slap in the face, click back to her deck. When you get that, you feel good because what you're getting not only is an answer to your question, but this this woman's on the job. She knows what she's doing. You know what I mean? She was waiting for that question. So the brand planning process itself and the, and the, the plan and the presentation aren't just showing what you want to do. They're also showing the options that you don't want to follow. And if you can get senior people to that marketing plan, then it becomes enshrined. And and I've seen that happen. Good senior managers are ready to be metaphorically spoken. They're ready to be slapped, you know, and they like to be slapped because what they want to know is the junior person is on it and they've got good reasons and I should just let them get on with it. So how, how should, how should budgets and objectives be set in the right way on the client side how do you see it working best so so let's pause first and so let's separate out objectives and budgets we'll do budgets first because they tend to come first even though it's the wrong way around you've got to stop and look at the ridiculousness of budget setting in almost every company more than 90 percent so here's how most marketers who are listening to this call this is how your money is derived for your marketing budget next year Someone in Zug or in Chicago or in London is going to look at your last four or five years of sales, and they're going to calculate a CAGR, a compound growth rate, based on essentially how much you're growing or, or shrinking. Let's say we're growing at 10% average CAGR, and we're doing, we did 100 million bucks last year. Well, says the finance team, if we extrapolate that out, we can expect to do $110 million next year. Very good. So they book the number. And then they work out an advertising to sales ratio. And let's say in this case, it's 10%. So for every dollar you spend on, every dollar of revenue we get, we give you 10% back to spend on marketing. Well, on a $110 million projected revenue, you're getting 10%. So here's your 11 million bucks. That's literally how 90% of companies do it. And it's now, what's wrong in with vacuum, that? right? Uh, it's done in a vacuum. That's the least of the problems. With so first of all, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's done in a vacuum by finance people who have no idea what's going on in the market. Second, we've already booked the number. Do you see what happened in that process? 
yeah. before marketers even thought about next year, finance have booked the number for next year, almost as if marketing doesn't matter. And so that's where marketing as a cost comes from. That's where marketing gets cut in a recession first because it's deemed philosophically in the organization as a cost. We've already got our number. Now, here's your money. Go spend it. It's completely wrong. And then finally, that advertising to sales ratio of 10% is total bullshit. It, it has no real logic behind it, and it's cut down whenever the finance team need to cut it down. It comes from a non-strategic place. So the first thing to recognize is the enemy is the traditional manner of budget setting. Now, how should it be done? Well, we should put the cart before the horse. We should have a strategy. We should have a plan. We should have clear objectives, and we should therefore be able to work out what the approximate value of those objectives will be to the firm, and also how much it would cost for us to achieve those objectives should we get approval. Yeah, And that's off the old word for that was objective and task budgeting. You would work out the objectives, you would price the tasks needed to deliver the objectives, and then you would bottom up propose two numbers, which still, by the way, in a good marketing planner there, if you give me X amount of money to invest, I'll give you a guarantee that I'll deliver Y revenues next year. So now, how do we flip that, though? How do, how do we, towards a solution, how do we begin to flip <laughs> that way of thinking? Is there is there a way for us to create doubt upstream, is to create fear upstream, to create a no, sense of no, wasteful no. practice? We're not, we're not in a position to get into that budget setting process. I've never, I've put in place zero based budgets, bottom up budgets in very large companies with multi billion dollar amounts of money. I like structurally helped the company do it. I've never been able to change that top down expectation of we have approximately, you know, a hundred million dollars for marketing and we expect a billion dollars of revenue from this, you know, this business area. That's out of our reach. What is within our reach is there's a pot of money yeah, that's set out for marketing investment. Internally, if we can show that we have a better plan, um, a more likely plan, uh, a plan at all, because a lot of our internal uh, uh, rivals don't have a plan, and that that plan will give us a very good return, we will get more of that preset money. So in effect, the best way to, to do budgeting, in my experience, is an internal competition where we will take money from the idiot marketers who don't have a proper plan or don't offer a good return. And, and that, for me, is capitalism at work, right? Let us invest in the better options. And very quickly, GMs get this idea that I have this pot of money sent to me from London. I have six brands. This, this man over here is presenting me a plan which looks good, feels like it's going to return the money, but he wants twice the amount that I was going to budget to him. Well, I'll take it from that guy over there because he's useless. I like that. That's the system that works. Now, the worst that can happen in that scenario, and I've been there, is all six have pretty good plans because we're getting better at marketing. We're getting more effective. And all of them in total want 30% more when you add up their brand plans, but they're going to deliver us 70% better return than I'm expecting as the GM of Bulgaria. At this point, I go back to London and I say, look, guys, can I get some more money? Because I'm telling you, we've got potential here. Is now, it that's potential or is it performance? Is it potential or performance? Well, at this stage, it's potential, right? I mean, over the years, what happens is if you deliver on your potential year after year, 
then you essentially get whatever money you ask. Because I, I have a guy, I mean, I'll, I'll name him because he won't mind me naming him. There's a guy called Nick Hagen who now runs Novartis somewhere in Eastern Europe. He's an old uh, trainee of mine in a couple of different companies. And Hagen was a brilliant, first of all, a brilliant thinker, but just took the strategy process perfectly on board. And he became known as the mailman. And you'll, rem you'll remember this, Fergus, you're of an age. You remember Carl Malone? I do, yeah. Basketball player. Why, yeah. did, why did they call Carl Malone the mailman? Do you remember? Shit, I don't even know sports, so I'm going to guess he wasn't a mailman, but he he made he made <laughs> the delivery frequently and regularly. You forgive it's a French statement because he always fucking delivered, right? And <laughs> and 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 be, and they called uh, Hagen the mailman because what for a period of about eight or nine years, whatever number Hagen came up with for his therapy or his brand or his product. He would literally always make sure he delivered it. So he got to the point in year seven, year eight, where the GM of whatever country he's in is like, so first of all, let's start the budgeting process with Nick. Nick, I'll look at your plan because I really enjoy your plans, but how much money do you want? Let me get that one down first, right? So potential becomes performance. Market has missed this point on the client side. You have to hit your number. I'm a you know huge believer in the long and the short, but if you don't hit the short, the annual number you need to hit or that you've promised you'll hit, the long is not going to happen for you. So many of us, probably all of us, at one point or another have looked at the objectives that are handed down from uh, either an account group or from client to an agency or who knows what the situation might be. But they many times, uh, at least one of them makes sense and is achievable, but it seems to be loaded and shadowed, overshadowed by a bunch that, seem to have been just slid in there to get through a meeting how how are we getting to that point are we is it, it seems to be a massive disservice to the client who's having to present it because it can't be achieved and it puts everybody in a ridiculous situation of of tension you first of all have to be ready and what you're seeing when you get this mishmash of seven or eight different styled objectives is too many chefs and not enough time to put down a proper strategy. So that's the first point. Second point is that we've got a great literature that comes out of, mostly out of Don Sol at MIT, who's a very good uh, strategy professor. His work looks at the practical success of strategy, not in marketing, but generally. And his research all points to the same finding, which is a handful of objectives, somewhere between three to five, appears to be practicable and potentially successful. How is Whereas that even more... possible? That that to me just seems like my my world, maybe I'm being naive here. If I've got more than two, I'm beginning to worry. Uh, look, I, I totally agree with you. And I spent a long part of my life, Fergus, telling my clients that let's just pick one big hairy objective, let's get it done, and then next year we might switch, right? I like a single objective. I have to say that your and my instinct is slightly wrong. The reason I say that is I looked at the FE data, the 50 years of the FE data, uh, and that when they gave me access to every single FE submission, and I looked at this. So why are we wrong, and why is Don Sol right? I think it comes down to we are thinking about a single client in a single moment. What he's talking about is for an overall annual plan for a large you know, yogurt brand, there probably are three or four objectives you can achieve. Now, remember, not all of them are what I would call funnel-based objectives, increased consideration. Some of them are about opening, you know, opening up a channel in um, 
in the on-premise category. Another one is, you know, change the perceptions that we're uh, fatty from X to Y. So there's normally a small handful of things we're trying to achieve in a year. But again, you and I are having a conversation born of, of focus. Remember that most clients are trying to jam 7, 8, 12, 15 objectives into an annual plan. And as A.G. Laffley, the, the, the wonderful CEO of P&G, said, when you've got more than five or six objectives, they aren't objectives. They're dreams that will never come true. So when I think of objective, I, I, I think of I think of there would be a sales number objective, a share increase possibly, right? Well, yes, there'd be some sales objective. No, neither of those. You you want neither of those. So they're, they're outcomes, right? That's like the football coach saying um, the, the strategy for the game ahead is we need to win, right? That's an outcome. That will be part of it, but very much at the back end. So let me give you a great objective. What's a great objective? Uh, increase consideration from uh, 10% to 35% among the happy eaters by December 2023. Now, next to that, to your point, is a dollar value for achieving that objective. It's worth $12 million when annualized, right? If you could have two or three of those, then we're talking, and you see them, you do see them, then you know you're in the presence of a decent market. There's, you know, there's, for well, what would be another, what would be another example? Because that, that I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you don't put sales as an objective, but I don't think clients would agree with that. I think they're like, we want to increase sales. That's, that's our primary yeah, uh, business objective. It, it's, it is an outcome. Wrong. You're right. Yeah. That, that's where they go wrong. Right. So they start out with the sales or market share goal. It's top down. It's nonsensical. What you have to bottom up that. So you've got look. You've got a couple of things going on with your sales. You've got the organic sales figure, which is really born of the trajectory of the brand, its existing purchase behavior, and your prior marketing, which is still working even as we move into this next year. So you're always going to extrapolate your sales from the previous year, following the pattern of what happened in previous years. That's the core sales. Right. The story of marketing is what are we going to do to incrementally add to that, right? And so the, for me, there are sort of three main types of objective. There's the one I've just shared with you, which is a funnel objective, right? So you build a custom funnel for a particular segment, and you're, you work out where the weak points are in the funnel, anywhere from top to bottom. You have a benchmark. You have a goal that you're going to set, and you can then calculate what the value of that will be over a year or whatever your planning period is to achieve that. That's the first type. The second type is much less uh, ROIable, but you know that one of the big things holding you back is the perception that your brand is artificial. Yeah, you can look at negative correlation coefficients in the market perceptions. The more the market thinks that I'm artificial, the less likely they are to prefer me. So another thing you do with a, with your objective is you say, I'm going to decrease the perception that our brand is artificial among the happy eater segment from 42% agree or strongly agree to 20% agree or strongly agree. Yeah. Now, the problem with that one is there ain't no dollar figure going with it. It's a long-term objective, but it's a vital one. And what you're trying to do with your funnel objectives is you're trying to make enough money that you can have one or two of these on the side that are kind of the longer-term, non-immediate valuable objectives, but you need to get them done to clear the path for later. Well, and then the, the, the third type is just the AN other type. So there'll be situations where 
I remember years ago, Benefit Cosmetics had a, had a they started doing vending machines, um, selling cosmetics in airports using vending machines. And one of their objectives was just, you know, to have 10 new vending machines, beauty vending machines open by the end of the year. And and that's, you know, that, you know, it had a value, a dollar value to it, but it was more, I just want to remind everyone, we want to do this as well. You know what I mean? So that, for me, that's the, that's the source material you get. And when you add your expected uh, organic growth, and then you calculate the incremental value of these new objectives, plus the ones that are just there to support the brand, you end up with a, a, a final landing number, which should be at least what upstairs expects, and then we can move. And so what would then be examples of bad objectives that you've seen commonly that are shoved in that shouldn't be in there? Well, I mean, the, the common ones, as you say, are it's just a single sales target. We need to, you know, we need to achieve twelve million dollars, or we need to to uh, reach forty five percent market share. Because the problem with these goals is that they don't speak to strategy of any kind, and we work back from those, you know, top down rather than bottom up. So they're the most common ones. The other ones are, are, are the naivety ones that say we're going to increase consideration from eight percent to eighty percent by the end of the year, <laughs> yeah. and the com the company has neither the money nor possibility of achieving that, right? And often you'll get naive. I mean, this is cruel, but I've seen marketing managers present things that are patently impossible. And I've sort of been halfway through suggesting in a meeting that it's impossible. And my GM has put a big hand on my leg and gone, no, 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 let them go with this. Because the GM knows a couple of things. First, he's not going to have to pay out the bonus this year for this objective. <laughs> Second, this guy's going to work himself to the bone to try and get it. And whatever he gets will be a great result. It just won't be what he's saying it'll be. So and how he'll do learn you, the lesson. How do, you, uh, do you have any insight in terms of budgeting? How do you begin to put a dollar figure on, on a, you know, on share growth? Well, that, that's not, that's not hard to do, right? So there's a, it, it's not easy to explain the podcast, but there's a technique that if, if marketers are trained properly, you can look at a funnel and you can work out, if I increase anything on the funnel, it gets easier towards the bottom, right? If I increase repurchase by 50%, there's a schoolboy calculation that will tell you what it's worth, right, over a year. It's harder to do it up the top with awareness or consideration, but it's not that hard because ultimately it flows down into purchase. But but here's a key point, Fergus, and, and this is maybe the most important point I can give people listening. It's approximate, yeah? We, we get a lot of marketers who are so paralyzed by the numbers, they never do it. And they look at accounting and go, but the counting, you know, they work it all out. And it's accounting's pretty straightforward. You're just counting money that's already there. A child can do that. Marketing math is much harder because we have to project it forward based on a whole bunch of assumptions, based on unknown competitor activities, and with a degree of variance that means it, it has to be an estimate. That doesn't mean your maths is bad. It means that we're fundamentally projecting approximate numbers, but that's okay. And if you look at great CMOs, I, I, I've done a couple of things where I've looked at what are the traits of great marketers. Um, one of the top ones, maybe the top one of all that no one talks about, is comfort within precision. If you look at all the CMOs I've worked for that are total winners, all of them can look at a bunch of numbers, go, yeah, 20%, that looks about right, move on. And if you look at all the middle-aged marketers that are unable to rise any further in their organizations, 
they will run those numbers another 400 times to try and get more precision when precision is not possible. I believe there's there's this connection that's being made between excess share of voice and share of market, and that th- there is a correlation between spending more and earning more in market share. Is that a way to get to assigning a cost to share? Do you it, think it's not? But it's not. But it's very useful. I'm glad you brought it up. So. Excess share of voice has been around since 1990, and even earlier if you look at the stuff that came out of uh, the U.S. But it was 1990 as a Harvard Business School paper published by uh, uh, John Paul Jones. And in it, he points out this almost spectacular correlation between market share and share of voice. If you take any category, and I mean any category, and you look at it over time, a company's share of voice equates almost directly one-to-one with its share of market. There's a little wrinkle at the bottom and the top of that of that curve, but it's essentially a perfect equilibrium. And the term excess share of voice, which was coined by Field and Burnett, is the idea that let's say I have a 10% market share, and that equates to a 10% share of voice. If I was to double my share of voice to 20%, I would have an excess share of voice of plus 10, right? Because... 20 share of voice minus 10 market share is plus 10. Over time, and it does take time, that excess, if I maintain it over the competitors and they don't respond, will mean eventually the equilibrium is restored and my 20% share of voice will deliver a 20% share of market. And this, you know, I don't believe in science in marketing. I think it's horseshit. Um, but this is one of the few laws that everyone subscribes to. I mean, Ehrenberg Bass and Byron Sharp, are, you know, they're fantastic uh, operation. They really don't like anything that's not been invented by them. It's a childish thing, in my opinion. Um, but they looked into it, and even they were like, yeah, yeah. Begrudgingly, in the end, they sort of conclude in their paper, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So what does that mean for marketers? So let me go back for a second. The time thing's important. So if you look at the time, if you've got an excess share of voice of 10 percentage points, you only get a percentage point or so on average per year of increased market share. So it might take seven or eight years of that excess to get to double your market share, but it does happen. So I see excess share of voice in in the, it's a wonderful law, but it's really a practical reality check for clients to say, guys, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Yes, creativity is important. And yes, strategy is important. But if you don't spend the money it's very, very unlikely that you'll see the returns that you expect. You know, we do have that fundamental precept. And so it can be a great final check to bring clients back to reality when they're often drinking their own Kool-Aid. If you're asked by senior level people within your organization to describe or define what a brand is, is there a shorthand, short sentence way that you find gets over the eye rolling? No, no I mean... I, I don't think there's a need to instantly define. I mean, the the thing that brand is outside of marketing, it's not how we build it or or, or what how it's defined. It's what it does for the company, right? These are the things that marketers need to master. The reason we need a strong brand primarily is to reduce price sensitivity, a point that always everyone makes. It's not, first of all, about driving growth and increased volume. That certainly is a factor of brand. But if you look at what brand ultimately does more than anything else, it, it increases profitability, which, which which is something everybody wants. So I wouldn't worry about defining brand at all among the boardroom. You, you know, they, 
a key but, point it, here but, is, but is brand not simply reputation? Uh, look, it is, but reputation is a very soft, fluffy term that I would encourage all marketers to avoid. It comes out of <laughs> it comes out of PR. But isn't it so? Very, yeah, but isn't it so? But isn't it understandable? Isn't it a gr- good way to start a conversation with somebody who thinks of brand as being no, this no, intangible it, it, thing? It's not, Fergus, because it plays too much of an emphasis on image. So what's the biggest revolution in brand thinking among marketers in the last decade? And this comes back to, you know, a lot of the work of Ehrenberg Bess. It's that if you put a number on it, 70 to 75% of brand is just simply coming to mind. That's not reputation because it's colorless. It's soulless. It's just brute salience. Yeah. What most marketers miss because they can't connect the dots. The reason we do this, Fergus, the reason we build brand is it makes companies more money. Yeah. And the minute you start making that point in the boardroom, everyone listens. The answer to, you know, stopping companies being short term isn't to change the word for brand, isn't to start talking about long term relationships. The way that you stop people over investing in short termism is you go, I cannot stand how much money we're about to lose because of this bullshit focus on ROI. Then follow up and explain. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, ROI is a half-dumb variable. Um, ROI teaches you to invest all your money in short-term activation, uh, which makes you more money in year one, but loses you money in years two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, forever. Right. You've just got to make that point to a to a, to a CFO who's not a dummy, and he or she will get it. The problem we've got isn't CFOs. The problem we've got, Fergus, is marketers who can't make that argument, can't talk about price insensitivity, can't talk about cash flow, can't join the dots in a boardroom way. We've spent 20 years trying to get marketers in the boardroom without worrying about the fact that once we get them there, they make a fool of themselves and marketing as well. You can't TikTok your way out of a boardroom discussion. You know, we have tactically obsessed, fundamentally disappointing marketers in senior roles. They're not good enough for the most part. And that's why we have a problem. Um, I know that you're a fan of the term positioning and positioning in the last number of years has also sort of come under attack as being maybe somewhat rigid, not being able to flex. And I've noticed that in you, in your, in some of your writings, you use the term uh, long brand positioning statement and short brand positioning statement. What's the distinction between both of those? Okay, good question. Um, So let's back up again. So when I say marketing strategy, I think you need to answer three questions uh, 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 to have a marketing strategy. You have to understand who you're targeting. You have to understand what the position is to those targets. And as we've already discussed, you have to have objectives for the markets that you're targeting. Linked to that then, positioning, which has always been linked to targeting, means that when we do long-term brand positioning, what we're effectively need, what all we need to have there is very tight, very clear sense of when I think of my brand, I think of A, B, and C, literally three or four things. Right? What yeah. are the three or four things I want you to think when you think about my brand? Beauty, simplicity, and you know, truth, I don't know, whatever it might be. Yeah, DNA, call it whatever you will. And the distinctive assets, which are so crucial to achieving salience, right? That's the positioning for the long brand mass. For the short of it, however, it's it's much more akin to the old-fashioned positioning statement. To X segment, the what, you know, our new uh, diet product is, you know, lowering calorie and, and, and better for you versus the competitor in this particular segment and as a result will deliver x benefit so there's a much tighter 
clearer, old-fashioned positioning statement at the heart of short activations that needs to be put in place. That, for me, is what an ideal brand plan looks like. What should the client brief contain and what should it avoid? So there's a difference between an internal brand planning or marketing planning presentation where you're presenting to the GM, you're presenting to the CMO, you're expecting them to ask why there, why not there. We've moved past that. When we get to the brief, the agency might ask a few of those questions, but the reality is this is me telling you what I want you to do, hopefully with clarity and authority and and, and understanding. So you can cut out a lot of the the early stuff that that sort of takes takes you through the logic of what you're doing and just cut to the chase. You know, I wouldn't even show segmentation, for example, in a client brief. I'd show the target segment portraits of the targets that I want to go after, as an example. Then, crucially, it becomes the the other thing at the back end is don't pre-specify tactics or creative. This is, you know, we see this again and again. Right. Clients have no strategy, but they have very clear ideas on what they want from tactics. You're hiring wonderful creative communication agencies to provide you with ideas, to provide you with tactical suggestions. Don't overbrief and go into that area. Focus on the strategy. And as we've said, the strategy is explain three things. Who we're going after, the targeting, what is our positioning? And what are the key objectives we have to achieve in order to be successful? If you can express those in a clear manner, then we can then present the springboard of beauty to the client, to the agencies, and they can bounce off it and do amazing creative tactical twists and turns. Two final uh, questions. The first one is, let's talk about the importance of creativity and courage, both in terms of outputs and thinking. What are your thoughts on it? In all the research I've seen, I think we can make a couple of broad meta conclusions, right? The first one is that media and creative are equally important in advertising effectiveness, if you add up all the numbers, right? So media tends to get broken down into into different aspects. The reality of when you look at that data and you zoom out of it, both creative and media are equally important. Now, that sounds obvious, but we've lived in in an era where media and the choice of tools has been focused on, and we haven't talked enough about, but is the ad any good? So yes, creativity deserves its place. And in the great Paul Dyson analysis of advertising effectiveness, it's the second most important factor in driving effect is, is, is your creative any good? Never forget the most important one is how big is the brand already? Massively more important than creative, right? If, you've, if you're a big brand with established uh, salience and share of shelf, your ad is just going to be more effective straight away because of that fact. We shouldn't ignore that. Is it fair to say that that the the lesson is uh, stay consistent strategically, but be unpredictable creatively? In other words, yeah, I like that. that. That's a great that's a great observation. I think if you look at brand building, what do we know about it? It has to it has to be always on, and it has to be multi year. Yeah, the long of it needs to be multi year, strategically consistent. To your point, that doesn't mean we can't then create multiple different creative executions, which are occasionally surprising and interesting, et cetera, but they come from that same core strategic place. And don't forget that the vast majority of communications work of advertising is pulled long before it can be truly effective because clients and agencies grow impatient with it. And the reality is it's only just beginning to work. So yeah, uh, there's a, the key message 
from the client side about execution is execute for longer and don't grow tired with the work when it, it still has a long way to go. Uh, I think these are key lessons that, that have never been refuted anywhere. It's Mark Ritson, columnist for Marketing Week, an advisor and professor, 25 plus years of experience, his mini MBA courses, extremely popular. I encourage people to check it out. And he lives in Hobart, Tasmania. Dude. The center of the world. The center, center of, of the world. world. Thank you for your time, man. And uh, one other thing is we know we're going to have you back towards at the end of December to talk about your uh, retrospective of marketing in 2022, like we did last year. So I'm excited about that too. Yeah, that's going to be fun. And good luck with the rest of the series. This is an amazing series. So I'm, I'm, I myself am interested in, in what follows next. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.